Welcome to The Podcast, a monthly podcast from the Princeton Alumni Weekly. I'm Brett Tomlinson, and our guest this time is Sarah Sayo, a legal historian and associate professor of law at the University of Iowa. Sarah graduated from Princeton with a bachelor's degree in history in 2002, and after studying law, returned as a graduate student, earning her PhD in history in 2016. She is the author of a new book, Policing the Open Road, How Cars Transformed American Freedom. Now, in popular culture, the car is often a symbol of freedom. Consider all those movies and songs about the open road. But as Sarah writes, driving a car is also the most policed aspect of everyday life. So we'll be talking about the history of the automobile and its impact on the law and law enforcement in the United States. Sarah, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. I've been looking forward to this conversation. Great. Well, I'd like to start with some background on your book, which I gather draws on research that you did for your PhD uh, dissertation at Princeton. What drew you to this topic? You're right. The book is based on my PhD dissertation. Um, I came to this topic from several avenues, most directly from my year clerking at the Southern District of New York uh, with Judge Denny Chen, who was also a Princeton alumni. Um, I didn't think I would be interested in criminal law, uh, but we have a general docket with civil cases and criminal cases. And I noticed that almost all of the criminal uh, cases that we had were drug cases. And I was really interested in the impact of the war on drugs on American criminal justice. And so my research topic kind of grew out of wanting to know more about the history on the war on drugs. And uh, my dissertation advisor, Dirk uh, Hartog, uh, kept asking me to narrow my topic. Uh, The war on drugs is a really broad topic. You can write a lot of things about it. A lot has been written about it. More can be written about it. But for a dissertation, it has to be... um, it's a, finding a dissertation topic is kind of like navel grazing a little bit. You, you kind of have to find your little uh, area to focus on. And so I narrowed it down to um, law enforcement and the war on drugs. But even that is a huge topic. So I narrowed it down even more uh, to the Fourth Amendment. Um, and the reason why I focused on the Fourth Amendment is because that's the one provision in the U.S. Con- Constitution that directly governs what the police can and cannot do. Um, So I basically started my research reading every Fourth Amendment case from the very beginning. Um, And there weren't a lot of Fourth Amendment cases until the 1920s. Um, And there was an explosion of Fourth Amendment cases then. And I realized um, as I was reading through all of these cases one by one, that a lot of them had to do with cars. And of course, the the automotive society really grows in the 1920s. So there was uh, a coincidence of the all of these Fourth Amendment cases questioning what the police can and cannot do with the mass uh, production and adoption of cars in American society. And, and the history is it's just so interesting. I mean, the arrival of the automobile led to these really profound changes in American life, and policing is included in that. For some very good reasons, you write about the 
aggressive or, or careless drivers who were causing this remarkable number of accidents, often fatal. Um, how did cities and towns respond to this public safety, public health crisis uh, of, of so many cars on the road? They, what they immediately began doing was creating more laws, all these rules and regulations governing how uh, someone could operate their cars on public roads uh, for uh, for public safety. Uh, the accident rate skyrocketed. Uh, children were dying on the streets. Uh, pedestrians were um, being hit with cars on uh, while walking on the sidewalk. And so um, cities and towns throughout the United States passed a lot of laws, the traffic code, basically. Um, and they ran into a problem. Um, they didn't have the law enforcement to make sure that drivers uh, obeyed the traffic code. Everybody kept violating the traffic laws. Still true today, right? Everybody who gets behind a car is guilty of some traffic law, whether it's speeding or uh, turning without a signal light. Um, and that was uh, that was true when cars first appeared on the roads, except the difference then was there weren't uh, police departments and police officers who uh, could enforce all of these traffic laws. And so I argue in the book that really modern policing grew because of the need to discipline the, the drivers, um, the early adopters of the automobile who were um, the quote-unquote everyman, the average middle-class uh, white American. And you write that this is something new. I mean, the relatively well-off or the or the middle-class uh, Americans might not have had that many interactions with police before the the traffic laws uh, became so prominent. Yeah, and that's that. This was a huge change. So uh, American society is going through a lot of changes in the 1920s, and this is one of them. Um, cars are historically changing American society. Um, so expectations of uh, privacy, including um, uh, how couples, young couples courted, uh, changed. Right? Uh, they they were now going on um, intimate drives. <laughs> so American society changed, American culture changed, and also and what you pointed out, uh, the way that um, that the well-to-do um, everyman American um, and how they interacted with the state changed too. Um, before cars, the way that laws and norms were enforced for the respectable middle-class person was through these associational groups, right? Uh, through trade associations, through churches, through fraternal organizations, uh, through uh, trade groups, um, they all regulated how people behaved towards one another. Um, and if those norms broke down, then they sued each other in court. Uh, they brought lawsuits against each other. Uh, there were police officers, of course, even before cars. Uh, but police, police officers mainly disciplined uh, those on the margins of society. And there's a, a lot of histories written about how law enforcement agencies uh, disciplined immigrants, they disciplined racial minorities, uh, foreigners. But the interactions between law enforcement agencies uh, and officers and the middle-class, respectable Americans, that was really foreign until the 1920s when people started um, confronting 
police officers in their cars. And this had a huge effect on uh, not just the relationship between citizens um, and police officers, but also the Fourth Amendment. And, and the vast expansion of cars on the road also coincides with prohibition and the illicit liquor trade, which, which I gather leads to the, the first automobile case that reaches the Supreme Court. Um, can you tell me a bit about uh, Carroll versus the United States and, and how that sort of set the tone uh, for how cars would be viewed by the courts? Sure. So Carroll versus the United States actually first appeared before the court in 1923. But for some reason, the court wanted to hear argument again in 1924. And then the decision came out in 1925. And so already early, from the early 1920s, uh, the issue made its way up all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. And the issue is whether uh, the police need a warrant to stop and search a car. Um, and this was um, a huge issue because under the common law that existed before a car, the answer should have been yes, officers do need a warrant because a car is an effect. The Fourth Amendment protects people and their houses and papers and effects. Um, effect is a, another word for movable things, right? And a car is obviously a movable thing. And so under the common law, um, an officer needed a warrant to stop and search a car. Um, but there was a problem with cars. Cars were easily mobile. People could get in a car and drive off at any time they wanted to. Uh, there were no set schedules to for the trolley train, no set schedules for uh, uh, the, the railroad car um, that they had to follow. Anybody could drive off. Um, and at high um, speeds, too. And so officers couldn't get a warrant in time. And so this posed really huge obstacles for law enforcement. They couldn't get a warrant in time to stop someone that they thought might be um, transporting alcohol in their cars. And so the court had uh, faced this quandary. Um, requiring a warrant uh, would prohibit law enforcement during prohibition. But at the same time, these established common law principles uh, that interpreted the Fourth Amendment dictated that officers needed to get a warrant for cars. Um, so what did the Supreme Court do? They completely changed the common law. Um, they said that an officer uh, does not need a warrant to stop and search a car if the officer has reasonable or probable cause that there's contraband inside. Um, and this is a huge transformation because for the very first time, the court um, authorized an officer to decide for him or herself. Back in the 1920s, it was probably himself. Uh, for the very first time, an officer could decide for himself whether he had probable or reasonable cause to stop and search a car rather than going to a judge and a judge deciding whether there was probable cause or not. Um, and so basically moving the decision from the judge to the officer really enhanced the uh, power of officers on the road. And we're seeing the ramifications of that up to today. So, so legally, your car is, is treated very differently than, say, your house would be treated in terms of, of the right to privacy or uh, uh, protection from, from search. Exactly. Um, 
what are the consequences of that view? Both the the intended consequence, I, I, I gather, is that it does allow for some degree of effective policing. But but what are sort of the the unintended consequences of of that uh, broad uh, discretion? But, well, one unintended consequence, um, and what I, I was referring to in my last uh, answer to you is the consequences that we see today is driving while black. The problem of racialized policing on the road that we see today is a product of this history. Uh, the home is the most protected um, private sphere in American constitutional law. And Supreme Court opinions will say um, a car... In a car, an individual has a lesser expectation of privacy. But really, when when you look at all the court decisions that have fleshed out what exactly the police can and cannot do uh, with respect to a car and a driver, there's really no privacy rights at all in a car. When a police officer uh, stops somebody for a minor traffic violation today, during that traffic stop, the Fourth Amendment starts allowing the officer to investigate um, further if the officer has a hunch or suspicion that there might be more in the car. Um, For minority drivers, that often can result in a search of the entire car, even if that person is innocent. Uh, For the everyman driver today, the the middle class uh, non-minority driver, uh, an officer usually doesn't proceed that far in terms of searching the car, but it is true for minor- minority drivers. Um, and if you look at the statistics of how many uh, minor- minority drivers are pulled over, searched, um, and then if you look at also statistics of um, police uh, traffic stops that have gone really badly, ended up with uh, police shootings, um, about a third of police shootings occur during a traffic stop. Um, and so... The, the power that police have over cars and their drivers has grown tremendously in the 20th century. Um, and that all started with the Supreme Court case, Carroll versus United States. And subsequent cases, automobile cases that include kind of the Fourth Amendment issues have, have, have definitely um, reinforced this, right? I mean, this this is not something that's that's kind of uh, retreated at all over the years. Right. It's just really, it's, uh, the, the police's powers over drivers in their cars have grown, uh, through the 20th century. They've added and built on each other. Um, and I can mention several, uh, important, uh, milestones in this history, um, that the police, police's power have grown. Um, and the reason why, as I explained in my book is that once you give the police discretionary power, uh, which Car- Carroll versus the United States did, it's really hard to draw bright lines um, on what the police can and cannot do. Um, and so what the courts have done is to say, well, the Fourth Amendment used to say uh, for uh, private property, for houses and effects, we re- require warrants. But now when it comes to cars, all we require is that the police be reasonable. Um, and in these Fourth Amendment cases, Usually a judge is looking at a guilty defendant. The officer found something in the car um, and uh, the defendant is challenging what the police did. And it's really hard for a judge to say after the fact, well, the police found something 
the and it's really hard to say that what the police did was unreasonable. So over time, you have uh, these court decisions saying what the police did was reasonable in cases where the the driver was actually guilty. What the judges don't see are the cases where drivers are innocent. Um, and so you get Fourth Amendment jurisprudence decided over the 20th century in cases where the defendants are guilty and, and judges are inclined to give the police more leeway. So in your book, you, you feature some of the interesting characters who influence policing in the 20th century. Um, I'm thinking first of August Vollmer. Um, how did he shape the modern police force and, and what was his uh, his role in that? Well, August Vollmer was the police chief of the Berkeley Police Department from 1905 to 1932. And he's called the father of modern policing. He was the leading reformer to get the police uh, modernized and professionalized. He wanted the police profession to be um, a field like lawyers, engineering, and teachers, where only uh, people who had degrees and specialized training um, could become law officers. And he really did not want uh, the police uh, to handle traffic cases uh, because in his mind, uh, policing was a profession that dealt with crime uh, fighting. But he he accepted the task that traffic law enforcement was one of the duties that um, officers had to do. Um, and so he played an important role in trying to professionalize uh, traffic law enforcement and general policing um, overall in the United States. And in the area of sort of pushing back against police practices and, and protecting the right to privacy. Uh, you also tell the story of Charles Reich, uh, a law professor at Yale. What was the impact of, of his work? And could you tell me uh, uh, just briefly a bit about the, the research and, and, and writing that he did? Right. So one thing I'll mention is that uh, Professor Reich just passed away this summer. Um, and so it was kind of um, a almost an end of a era in terms of um, looking back at the impact of his scholarship, which was very tremendous. So let me start by explaining what his uh, biggest contribution to the legal scholarship was. He wrote this groundbreaking article called The New Public, where he argued that uh, the government basically um, distributed almost all the wealth in this country. It used to be private property as was the basis of wealth and uh, a person's uh, privacy rights against the state. But now in the modern state where the government doled out welfare benefits, licenses, uh, government contracts, almost everybody had kind of what he called a feudal relationship with the state. And the implications of that, he said, was that the, the government um, had increasing power over individuals. And so he argued in this groundbreaking article that the uh, welfare beneficiaries should be able to claim due process property rights in their benefits uh, from the state. And the reason why I talk about this in my book about cars is because he, uh, his, pro his paper about the new pro uh, property, the car was everywhere in that article. 
And I think what he was trying to do in that article was to say you to, to you, every man, respectable white American, you might think that this argument about welfare benefits is about poor people, but affects you too, because everybody has a license from the state. That license is a driver's license. Um, so everybody is uh, beholden to the state, at least on the road, because uh, you, in order for you to drive, the state has to give you permission in the form of a driver's license. And in, with that relationship, the state has a lot of power over you. Um, and this is what we were talking about at the beginning of this interview, um, how much power the state has uh, because we live in a car society. It's the most police aspect of everyday life. And Rice was trying to argue that everybody was beholden to the state because we, we live in a car society. You've, you've traced, I mean, this, this is really a history of more than a century that, that leads up to the present day that, that, that continues to be a major uh, issue, uh, policing the roads. Um, do you see potential legal remedies that could make the encounters between police and the public um, safer and, and, and more just? Um, within the, the framework of, of what's been established uh, in terms of uh, Fourth Amendment jurisprudence? Okay, you asked the million-dollar question, which is um, what, what can be done? Um, and let me answer that question by going back to Charles Reich. So he saw the, uh, the state's power over individuals, um, everybody in the country, because of the relationship between drivers and the state. And he was, in particular, uh, very cognizant of the dangers to individual privacy rights because of uh, because of that relationship of uh, the government uh, regulating drivers and uh, driving. He this and he he wrote these articles in the sixties, early seventies. He was a closeted gay man during this time, and he felt stifled by. Um, uh, suburbia, domesticity, um, and uh, and to basically escape from that feeling of being stifled, he went out for drives by himself, long drives. He loved to drive. And he got pulled over a lot. Um, and he didn't know why. Uh, he, he asked one officer, why are you pulling me over? And the officer basically told him, I can do that if, whenever I want to. You can't do anything about it. And so he, whenever he get, whenever he got pulled over, and an officer asked him where you're going, where are you coming from, these are really um, intrusive questions for somebody who was a closeted gay man trying to escape um, the oppression of suburbia by driving, right? And so for him, the police officer being able to stop him in a car and asking him about his whereabouts, he wanted to figure out a way to protect himself, to protect his privacy uh, from the police. And he wrote an article about this, what can be done to protect what he called law-abiding citizens in their cars. And he was referring to himself as the law-abiding citizen. What could be done to protect uh, people like him? Um, and the, the eye-opening thing was he really didn't have a solution. Um, he went back to the 1925 case, Carroll versus United States, actually, uh, that if he, he said, we need some more rights, 
Um, and what can those rights be? Well, before the police can stop you and ask you questions, they really need to have a good reason, probable cause. That's the Carroll decision right there. Um, and so this goes back to what I was saying earlier. Once, once the law gives uh, the police discretion uh, to uh, enforce the laws on the road, and even before that, uh, even before the law uh, gives that power, when American society uh, decides that we're going to rely on police officers to maintain order, to fight crime, um, and, and that those tasks require discretion and proactive action on the part of the police, it's really hard to draw a bright line on what the police can and cannot do. Um, and so what is to be done? Charles Reich didn't really have an answer for what is to be done. Um, the answer today might be actually, um, if it's really hard to draw bright lines about what the police can and cannot do, maybe we should start drawing bright lines. Um, and maybe those bright lines can be uh, um, decriminalization. Um, because once you say certain things won't be criminalized, then that takes away an area for the police to police and exercise discretionary power over. Um, so these are some of the questions, your million-dollar question. These are the things that I'm still grappling with right now in my uh, role as a law professor and legal scholar. Um, my hat as a historian is written in the book. Um, that these are really hard issues that um, law professors are still grappling with. This is a well. It's not just a historical issue. It's it's very much a a policy issue today. Uh, something that that deserves uh, more exploration. Um, Sarah, I, w I wanted to ask you about your uh, background, your your Princeton experience, because I gather you you didn't take the typical path into academia. You um, you graduated, went to law school, uh, did did uh, clerkships in the federal courts. What made you decide to come back to the history department for your PhD studies, and and what has your path been, um, you know, since beginning graduate school? I've always loved history uh, as a child, especially biographies. I loved reading about people. Um, one of my earliest memories, uh, not earliest, a memory in around junior high school is reading a biography of Eleanor Roosevelt. And calling the UN after I finished the book, calling the UN, I'm asking for an internship. Um, I, I've always been drawn to meeting people also. Um, so the love of history has always been there. And I went to Princeton as an undergrad, majored in history, uh, and I did two certificates. Um, and uh, women, back then it was called women's studies, uh, today it's called gender and sexuality. Um, but I did a certificate in women's studies and a certificate in East Asian studies. And my senior thesis was on the history of the Korean comfort women movement. Um, and uh, Princeton was generous enough to fund um, my research, which allowed me to go to Korea to interview the activists um, in that uh, comfort women movement to uh, help the uh, sex slaves of the Japanese military during World War II gain a uh, redress for what they experienced. And in my interviews with these activists, a lot of them were lawyers. Um, and this was really the first, okay, this was the second time I interacted uh, with lawyers. The first time was uh, our immigration lawyer um, when I was 
um, in high school. But this was the first time I really talked to lawyers and were really inspired by what they were doing. Um, and so I kind of had this uh, decision after uh, graduating from undergrad, do I want to be a lawyer, a human rights lawyer, or do I want to pursue history further as a profession? Um, so I decided to go to law school. Uh, uh, and even in law school, I was uh, both really interested in law, but also really interested in history. Um, and, and so I told myself, I'll, I'll spend my clerkship years figuring that out. Um, and, uh, some, uh, mentors in law school convinced me that I could do both law and history and pursue human rights all at the same time. And so I decided to go to, uh, graduate school. And the specific question of why Princeton is because we, uh, Princeton had Dirk Hartog on the faculty and he is, widely considered the person to study legal history with. Um, he just retired this year, which is, um, which is a passing of an era. But, um, when, uh, Dirk called me to say that I was, uh, I got in for, uh, uh, for the PhD program, um, I, I knew that, uh, I didn't need to look anywhere else. That was where I wanted to be. Well, it seems like you have made a, a good choice. The, book is a very interesting read, and I appreciate you taking the time uh, to speak with me. I, it's been very interesting. Thank you so much. Um, I really enjoy talking to you, and it's, you know, the best thing for a writer is, uh, is to have somebody to read her book. <laughs> so you paid me the highest compliment. <laughs> well, thank you. Sarah Sayo is the author of Policing the Open Road, How Cars Transformed American Freedom published by Harvard University Press. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe. You can find us by searching for Princeton Alumni Weekly on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and SoundCloud. And transcripts of every podcast are available on our website, paw.princeton.edu. This episode was recorded at the Princeton Broadcast Studio with help from Daniel Kearns. The music is licensed from First Come Music.